Indeed, have a great Sunday. It's just begun. It's a beautiful, sunny Sunday morning, and you've joined, uh, you've joined with us. So, man, thank you for taking time. Uh, before we jump into the talk, we want you to get ready. If you have a Bible or you want to grab it, uh, you can pick up the pair of notes on um, the outlines on a church website. It's posted on the video player. Or if you're on Facebook, there's a link in the comments section. So we encourage you to grab that and um, plug in, follow along, get your pins out, or if you want a pencil, that works too. Uh, fill in all those blanks, and man, by the end of it, uh, you'll know this, this um, text pretty well. So going back to May 26, 2002, Some folks left their home hoping to catch some fish Well, they came home that night having saved some lives. It was a big deal. Because early that morning, a barge collided in the I-40 bridge that spans the Arkansas River um, that's in Oklahoma. And suddenly, in one moment, a piece of that bridge plunged into the river. Down below, you had the bass fishermen in their boats, and they watched in horror as Cars speeding along interstate at 70 miles an hour were hurled into the air and then down into the river. So quickly, the fishermen maneuvered their boats to a couple of the vehicles that they could reach, and they pulled out four survivors out of the water. But cars and trucks continued driving on that, on that interstate with the bridge being out um, man, these drivers were oblivious to the, the, what was coming up on, on the bridge, man. And so one of the fishermen realized that he had to do something. He took his flare gun, shot it into the air, and he was hoping that it would help stop the vehicles in the process. But when he fired the flare into the air, amazingly, it hit the approaching semi in the windshield. And so the trucker came to an abrupt stop ending up with his front wheels hanging over the edge of the break in the bridge. Pretty crazy. Well, that stopped all the traffic behind him, fortunately, saving countless of lives. Those fishermen could not let those people go over the edge to their deaths, and they would do whatever they could to save them. You know what? God did the very same thing. When sin came into the world, people were really hopeless without a Savior. They were going over the precipice with eternity away from God. And so God, because He loved the world so much, in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, that was Jesus, that whoever would believe in Him, they would not perish but have eternal life. Think about that. Just like that one fisherman shooting the flare hidden the the semi in the windshield, God did something greater by allowing his one and only son to go to the cross to pay for your sin, debt, and mine, and pay it in full. He did something about it. So we who know Jesus, we have a responsibility to those who don't know Christ, and that is living our lives in such a way that we talk, we live our lives pointing people to having a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's do that. Let's shoot the flare in the air this morning 
and see what God does. Today, we're going to uh, look at a record where uh, the life of Jesus was being lived out in the town of Capernaum in Israel. And in your Bibles, we're going to go to the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, the second book in the New Testament, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. So uh, let's pick it up. Everybody, I know you've got your Bibles. I can hear you turning the pages. That's pretty cool. And here we go. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. And soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. And while he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. So before we jump in anymore, let's pause Ask God's help. So, Father, once again, we consider it a privilege to be able to come and talk to you and have you talk to us. That's the cool thing when we study the Bible, God's Word, and we can allow it to speak to us as we read it. And that's what we're desiring to do this morning, Lord, that you will empower your Word, that your Spirit will talk to us, Point out areas maybe we need uh, to work on. Maybe there's some watching this morning that have never placed their faith in you. And so we ask that uh, that decision would be made because it's the greatest choice a human being can ever make. And that's putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ so they can live with you, Lord, forever. So thank you for making that possible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, chapter 1 in the the Gospel of Mark, you can read it for yourselves, um, but you'll find that Jesus was baptized and then he was led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. And then he went into his public ministry, started teaching, healing people, and On the tail end of chapter 1, verse 45, it says, As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. That's exactly what's happening here in Mark chapter 2. Jesus ends up coming back to Capernaum and is hanging out in Peter's house. Well, people found out about it, and uh, they kind of broke the doors down <laughs> to get to be where Jesus was. That's, that's chapter 2, man, on the front end. And so uh, number one in your notes, let's, uh, let's fill in that blank. Jesus wants to come home. You ever, you ever have that happen to you when you're traveling and you, you kind of get homesick and you think, man, There's no place like home. How about it? No place like home. Well, Jesus has that same desire. Check this out. You know where home is for him? Inside your life. Think about that. Jesus wants to make his home inside your life. And it's pretty cool because um, in verse 1, 2a here, it says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, 
because in chapter 1, we know he had been traveling around. He had been to Capernaum in chapter 1. He left. Now he's coming back. The news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. So when word got out, when people started texting, emailing, uh, Facebooking, man, hey, Jesus is in Capernaum, word spread like wildfire. So people came from all around back to Capernaum. Notice it says that in in, uh, the verse here, that Jesus was at home in Capernaum. What's that about? Well, most likely he was in Peter's home. And Peter had set up kind of like an office for Jesus to, to, uh, to operate as Jesus' base of operations. So he'd go out, he'd come back. This was a place where he could recoup and um, have a pizza, whatever the case may be, be strengthened, hanging out with, with uh, Peter and his friends. And so that's where this came out. Now, what was going on inside Peter's house was in that culture, um, they had an open-door policy. That's kind of where we get that phrase in our culture today, having the open-door policy. I don't know how it is in your house, (laughs) but if you have people coming and going, that's kind of like an open-door policy. Well, in Peter's day and in Jesus' time here in in Mark chapter 2, what you would do You would open your door. You didn't have a screen door, by the way. You just open your door, and that was a a signify to people that they had the freedom to come into your house. They could go in your refrigerator, you know. They could get some iced tea, whatever the case may be, and and that's the way it was. When you closed your door, you let people know, hey, you wanted some privacy. You wanted some alone time. So that's what's going on here, and. Peter evidently must have opened his door because the verses say that his house was packed. It was so packed, people were hanging out the windows and backed up out the door. How many of you know that's a lot of people, right? So let's take a look at what Capernaum looks like. Let's, this, is, this is a picture of modern-day Capernaum in Israel. What, what do you see there? It's north of the Sea of Galilee. Man, this is beautiful. I've been there. It's, it's breathtaking. You can see all the, the remnants of the former homes. These are just basically the foundations that you see. And some of the modern buildings, uh, you know, they're just there to uh, take advantage of, the, of that particular site. So I think if we took a vote this morning, we'd all say, man, that's a beautiful place to go, right? Yes or no? All right, let's take a map. Let's look at the map here. So Capernaum is, as you can see, it's north on the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to see that there were some critics that came in with this crowd to hear Jesus talk. Listen, they weren't there to hear the wisdom of Christ. They were there to criticize what he had to say. They were looking for proof to put him away. So they went there with really a, a, with criticism in their head. We're going to look for anything Jesus says that we can put on the front page of the newspapers and destroy his reputation. So, so they came, the Pharisees, the scribes, came from Jerusalem. That's 120 miles away. Down at the south, just uh, if you look, see the top of the Dead Sea, you go left, that's Jerusalem. 
You go 120 miles to the north and a little bit to the east, and boom, you're right there in Capernaum. So that's that was going on. So to give you an idea, 120 miles back in that day, that would be like you and I walking from Mount Horeb um, all the way to Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And if you wanted to really go fast, you get on a donkey. <laughs> Amen. It, it took a long time. So they went there on purpose, these religious people, to criticize Jesus. Now we see that in verse 1b, the news spread quickly that he was back home. That's Jesus. I want to reiterate again that Jesus wants to come home in your life. Yes, he does. Going back to that open-door policy in Capernaum, if people open their doors, their neighbors could come in and stay. If the door was closed, their neighbors knew they weren't welcome at that time. You know something? We've got that same freedom. We can open up the door to our heart and allow Jesus to come in and move in and make our heart his home. But you also have the power to close your heart's door and shut him out. Incredible, isn't it? The God who created your body, your life, for a purpose, he's given you that kind of freedom. Because that's what love is. Love is a decision. You can't force someone to to be loved. That's not love. So I'm going to tell you something. In Ephesians 3, 14 and 19, this is one of my favorite texts because it's come alive to me in my own personal life. So let's read it. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, when I think of all this, who's I? That's Paul, the apostle. I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. Oh, let's, let's read that again. He's the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. Man, if you're flirting with, you know, I wonder who made the stars and I wonder who made the universe. Your answer's right here. He's the creator in heaven and on earth, man. He's made everything. He's made you. And I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. What's that about? Well, verse 17, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Man, that's that's God's goal. To make your heart his home. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should. Check this out. How wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. I think there's a song that goes deep and wide, deep and wide. Right? One of the top Sunday school songs from a long time ago. You can sing that. Verse 19, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Do you realize, man, I've been a follower of Christ for many years, and I am still learning and understanding about God's love. It just gets bigger, greater all the time. And so... May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Check this out. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. That is God's desire. That 
just like he came to Capernaum, it was called home, he wants to make his home in your heart and in your life. Now, Paul tells us, he gives us some secrets on how that can happen. He says, when we allow Christ to make his home in our hearts, your roots, your spiritual roots will grow down into God's love. God's love, man, those roots go down into it. That's where you get your lifeblood from. That's where your roots tap into that love, and it helps you love those People that you have trouble loving. <laughs> yeah. How can Jesus say, love your, love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. You have to have your roots tapped down into his love. So, like trees. Check this. Just like this, man. Look at those roots. Look how far down they go. You know, just imagine they're, they're tapped into God's love. That's what... That's what Jesus wants you to do, man. Let your roots go down into his love. And when that happens, you will be made complete with all the fullness of life. In other words, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Why? Because you are secure in your relationship with Christ. Yes, you are. You're secure. You don't have to, you don't have to try and be somebody you're not. Because the smile of God is on your life. You are complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So somebody can ask the question, where, um, where am I getting my nourishment from? Where am I getting my st- stability from in life? What am I tapping into? What are my roots getting into? And um, we need to realize that our roots need to go deeper into, in, into Christ. So here's the deal. In my younger days, my roots would, would would go down, and then and then, if I didn't think God was doing what I thought He did, I'd pull pull up, boop, you know, pull my roots out. And what happened was my my relationship with Jesus was more like a roller coaster experience. It was, you know, no consistency. There was no stability. But when I realized how much God loved me. Because, man, I had been pushing his love away, saying I wasn't good enough, I wasn't worthy for God to love me. But when I settled that and let him love me, my roots went down into that love. It radically transformed my life and my walk with Christ. It brought stability because my root, I let my roots go down and stay down. That's where they belong. And when Jesus makes his home in your life, I'm telling you, man, great things happen. Just this past week, I noticed my yard is being overrun with something. And so I, I took a photograph, and I, and I went on Google search, and you know what I found out? You know what's going on in my backyard right now? You want to know? I heard that yes, so I'll tell you. It's garlic mustard weed, man. It's taken over my yard. Garlic mustard weed. And so... I researched, what can I do to get rid of this weed? You know what I was told? You need to get to at the base of that weed because it gets to be three feet tall, man. You've got to get down on your knees and pull the roots out. Pull them out. Friend, if you're getting your nourishment from something other than God, let me encourage you to pull the roots out of whatever you're tapped into 
and allow those roots to go into the love of God. Let him make his home in your heart. That's what he wants. So, man, make his home in your heart. Have you ever been in a house where you felt unwelcome? Huh? You know, how, you know that feeling like, hey, everybody else is being made to feel welcome, and I feel like an outsider. Uh, I really don't feel comfortable in this house. <laughs> man, I remember years ago, uh, Debbie and I and our younger kids, we were, we were in, in a home, and we're sitting there, and I leaned over to her, and I said, let's go home. <laughs> Man, let's get out of here, because I wasn't comfortable. You ever feel like that? You don't want that to happen to Jesus, man. He wants, he wants to make his heart your home. Settle in, and let him work in and through you. You won't regret it. Number two, hungry to learn about Christ. Look at verse 2b. While he was preaching God's word to them. I love this. This thing exploded, man. When I was studying this text, while he was preaching God's word to them. In other words, he wasn't talking about social issues and, and about all the problems in the world. Jesus was preaching God's word. That's what we're doing right now. That's why we can get so excited about it, man. We are preaching God's word because that's what's most important. Now, this word preaching is a verb in the imperfect tense in the Greek, and it shows continuous action. What Jesus preached about was the word. It was called the good news, the gospel. That's what he was doing. He recognized the people that were in that room needed to hear the good news, that he was the Savior of the world. And so that message remains the same even today. The gospel, the good news, that's what's most important. And we know that the long-awaited Messiah had come to break the power of sin. Man, maybe you're struggling this morning with a life-controlling habit. It's got a grip on you. You hate what you do, but it has control over you, man. Jesus has come to break the power of sin and set you free. That's good news. Now, hungry to learn about Christ. So let me ask you, these people that were inside Peter's house, do you think they were hungry to learn what he had to say? I think some of them were. We know the Pharisees weren't. They, were, they came in being critical. They went out being critical. Their hearts were very hard. Their hearts were not made home-like for Christ to move in. No, they shut the door on Jesus. And so, when there's no hunger for the presence of God, friend, there's something wrong going on in your life. I talked to a dude last week, and he told me that, and he's been a follower of Christ for a long time, and he said, you know, reading the Bible and praying, it's, I, I'm just not feeling it. You ever have that happen? Can I tell you it's okay? I don't have, I don't, I don't, I don't get the, you know, the gospel goosebumps every time I read the Bible or, and talk to God. There's many times where you just feel flat spiritually. But can I tell you a secret? And this is what I told this dude, man. I said, keep on praying and keep on reading because the light is at the end of the tunnel. That's faith. That's a walk of faith. We know that. We're not always going to have that feeling. You know, well, I don't feel like reading my Bible, but I'm going to read it anyway. 
because I know it's good for me. That's what I've found out to be true. So, so we need to create that hunger for God's Word. Um, I, I got to tell you, man, I, I read an article from a worship leader last month, and it's, it, um, it impacted me. And I want to read it this morning because I think it will challenge all of us. He said, I find myself increasingly troubled when I look at Western Christian culture and see such a startling lack of representation or instruction on vital teachings in Scripture, particularly the passages that warn and admonish. It troubles me that teachings on these passages are virtually non-existent in modern preaching. But I sit down, if I sit down and just read a couple chapters of the Bible, they're so prevalent I can't escape them. I'm talking about the teachings of Jesus, Peter, James, John, and Paul. So much heresy is running rampant in the church because we're not clearly preaching the reality of eternal punishment, the reality of heaven and hell, or the frequent commands concerning holiness, godliness, purity, and true Jesus' apprenticeship. I don't know quite how we got here, but somehow we've created a Christian culture that edits Scripture, removes gravity of His holy commandments, and numbs people's ears to real truth. If you want a glimpse into the last two years of my life, so he's putting his life out on the line here. He's being very transparent. It has mostly been about deep, ongoing repentance as of let his words, God's words, pierce me with deep grieving over my sin and brokenness. And not once was it disconnected from his love, his mercy, or his goodness. In fact, I have felt all those things the strongest in the midst of it. His truth is merciful. His truth is love. His truth is good. But oh, the warfare over truth in our lives. My loving appeal is this. Read Scripture, as though your life depended on it. If you read Christian literature more than the Word, stop and reverse that. Now more than ever, feed on the Word of God. Let it refine you, preserve you, guard and equip you for every good fruit-bearing work. The times ahead demand it. I say yes to his heart, man. You can tell there's a hunger there. Man, if he was in Peter's house on that day when Jesus was teaching, he would have had his notebook out, right? He would have had his Bible open. And so um, it's, it's sad, you know, with followers of Christ allowing their spiritual appetites to be dulled by other things, you know. Other things take up our time and our energy, um, you know, we kind of snack our way through the week on, you know, snack food instead of getting into God's Word. Um, we complain about being busy, and even with uh, COVID-19 shutdown, man, hey, uh, don't you have a little extra time you can find with God? You should take advantage of that, you know. Instead of taking God in small doses throughout the day and somehow on Sundays we're hoping, to, you know, to get caught up. You know, 
Maybe you're not a follower of Christ, man. You just fill your life with stuff and things and busyness, and God has been trying to get your attention, and you just keep shutting him up. Man, I want to encourage you to let God have his way in your life. Say yes to him. Tiffany Kilgore wrote an article called A Hunger to Know God More. See if it resonates with you. I find I want more. I find spending time with God's words leads me to God himself. The words are more than words, though. Slowly his words bleed into my heart, then out from my heart into my everyday, ordinary life. I begin, not even consciously, hungering for things I never did before without trying. I want to learn what God is like, who he is. I want to talk to him. I want him to talk to me. So I make time for that by getting up before everybody else. New life intersects for me where God's words find me and I am awake to them. It's like coming out of anesthesia, rising after a long sleep. It doesn't take long to sense my taste buds changing. I don't want the comforts I wanted before. Now I crave those words that fill me in a way I'd not known was possible. My thought patterns begin to change as well. I rearrange my life to position my cold heart next to God's campfire. I suddenly see habits I knew God was gently calling me away from. Slowly, he begins melting my heart, changing me from the inside out. It isn't anything drastic all at one time. Rather, it's slow interior work, invisible work. We all want outward immediate change, but this is gradual work on the inside, sacred work. I can feel it taking root, and soon others start to see it too. When I read, eat, and act on words from the Bible, they go down deep inside me penetrating my surface superficiality, my negative narratives, all the way down to the deepest, dark, secret places. Reading the Bible, the words burn deep inside me. They alleviate the ache. And when I read the Bible and talk to God, I don't want to play it safe. Something in me wants to come out and do something brave. Man, those words are encouraging. Yeah. What Tiffany, I, I had this conversation with somebody recently that there's mile markers in your life. And I, I'm realizing the longer I walk with Christ, things that used to attract me don't anymore. They, they just kind of fall off. And that's kind of what Tiffany was talking about here. You know, making time for God, letting Him talk. To each one of us. I was on a walk a couple days ago, and I was on a sidewalk walking east. There was a dude walking west on the same sidewalk. So as we get close, I look him in the face, and I say hi to him. What do you think he said to me? Nothing. He didn't even look at me. You know why? Because he had earbuds in his ears, man. And I could hear the music pulsating as I walked by him. How do you think that made me feel? It broke my heart. Well, not really, but I was somewhat disappointed because I said hi to him. And he, he fully ignored me. Now, that is a picture of how we can live our lives with Christ. We put our earbuds in. Jesus is walking by. He says, hello, let's spend some time together. And we totally ignore him and walk right on by. 
Is that how you live your life? I hope not. And if you are, maybe it's time for a change. Number three, four men and a man. I like this, uh, this number three because four men and a man, it makes me th- think of two men in a truck. <laughs> yeah, uh, only now we have four men and a man. Now, what's that all about? Well, let's read verse 2b. Uh, while he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Somewhere in this region, you know, around Capernaum, there was a paralytic man. We don't know if he had been born that way uh, from, you know, from birth or the paralysis came in from an accident later on in life. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But all we do know is that he was a paralytic and he was dependent on other people. Fortunately, fortunately, he had four friends that cared about him as a man. Now, the word of mouth, you know, however it got out, um, Jesus was in Capernaum, and it could have been this man, the paralytic. He, he could have maybe got word on the street you know, because paralytics, they put them out on the side of the road, and if people felt sorry for you, they throw money on your lap. Maybe he had heard, you know, hey, Jesus was coming back, and he got a hold of his four friends and said, hey, hey, can you get me to where Jesus is? Or his, one of his friends said, hey, I've heard Jesus is coming to Capernaum. Let's get the three other dudes and our buddy, who's the paralytic, and we're going to get him to where Jesus is. That's what we're going to do. Whatever and however it worked out, I'm going to tell you my particular theory. I believe the paralytic had heard Jesus teach before. And I believe that this paralytic realized, first of all, even over being a paralytic, that he was a sinner and that he needed a Savior. That was what was most important to him. His healing was secondary. That's what I believe. So we've got these four men and a man. The man is the paralytic. And they're taking their friend to where Jesus is. Now, first of all, first of all, subpoint, they had a sense of urgency. Look at this, verse 2b3. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Check this out, this, uh, this image. Look at this. So you, you can see why they needed four guys. Each guy took a, a corner of the mat, and evidently they had to walk a long ways, man. So four of them carrying their friend to where Jesus was. And we know in this culture that when somebody was sick or somebody had a physical handicap, the Jewish cultures, they, they, they said, there must be sin in your life. God is punishing you because of this uh, pain or suffering that you're going through. So you had a stigma that, you, that carried with you, man. 
And so these friends, knowing that their friend was a paralytic, and the Jewish culture said, hey, this dude must have sin in his life. You know, he's being punished by God. It didn't matter to them. It didn't prevent them, you know, from taking their friend to where Jesus was. They did it anyway. Man, we all need friends like that, don't we? Huh? Yeah, we all need friends to hang with us when we go through challenges in life. Number two, they were a team to, a, to the finish. Look at verse 2, 3 again. While he was preaching God's word to them, three, four men arrived carrying the paralyzed man on a mat. And so no matter uh, what it cost them, these four men made the decision to get their friend to where Christ was. Casey Stingle, who managed the uh, baseball team of the New York Yankees and the uh, New York Mets in the 50s and 60s, he made an observation. He said, it's easy to get good players. Getting them to play together, that's the hard part. Being a team. And we see these four men are acting like a team. You know, It doesn't matter who's got what corner. They're working together to get their friend to where Jesus is. Number three, they had a no-quit attitude. Verse four, they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. (laughs) You can use your imagination. It's kind of like, you know, this no-quit attitude. There were a group of young boys playing baseball over the summer years ago, and a man happened to be walking down the street and, and saw them playing, and he asked uh, one of the boys what the score was, and the boys said, it's 98 to nothing. They're winning, pointing to the other team. And the man said, wow, you're getting beat pretty bad, aren't you? And the boys said, oh, no, we're not. We haven't been up the bat yet. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, we haven't had our turn. In other words, we're not giving up. The game just started. Oh, man, if we would have that tenacity of those boys on that baseball field, man, no quit. There's no quit in us. And you look at these these friends, man, they got there late. Why? Why did that happen? Well, you can imagine carrying an adult man for quite a while. They got it, maybe got it stuck in traffic, whatever the case may be. Um, they got there late because the house was full. No vacancy signs were placed all around it. Ray Steadman uncovered the names of these four guys, by the way. Frank Faith, Harry Hope, Larry Love, and Dan Determination. Frank Faith said, I believe we can get this man to Jesus. Harry Hope said, I believe there's hope for our friend. Larry Love said, I really love this dude. And Dan Determination said, let's roll. Boom. Let's roll. Let's get him to where Jesus is. The men could have said, you know what? Hey, this guy gets heavy after a while. I only promised to get him to the front door, man. You know? I I don't know what we're going to do. The doors are closed. I guess it's God's will. We got to take him back home again. You know, they could have signed off. But one of the men came up with this brilliant idea. And he said, let's go to the roof. They were so close to where Jesus was, they couldn't get to where he was. So one of them thought about the roof. Check this. Check this. Let's back up to the last uh, slide. Um, let's go to Peter's house. Let's use Peter's house here. 
so you can see, this is an artist's rendering of Peter's house, but you can see the stairway on the right side. And that's how houses were built back in that day because up on top of the roof, you see that little lean-to. A lot of times, because the climate was so hot, people would sleep on the roof at night. Yeah. And so they would have a stairway going up. So these guys put their heads together and said, hey, what we can do is we can carry them up the steps to the top of the roof. Now, back in that day, you had timbers that were laid out parallel every two to three feet. Then the sticks were, were uh, crosswise across the timbers. And then they petted them with reeds, thistles, and twigs. And then they overlaid it with about a foot of dirt. And then they packed it all down to keep the leaks out. So all told, that roof was about two feet thick, pretty thick. So you can imagine inside Peter's house, Jesus is teaching. you got the Pharisees sitting probably in the front row, you know. And everybody else is packed into the house. And all of a sudden you hear construction site going on. These guys had to go to Ace Hardware and rent a sawzaw. They had to buy rope and a pick to break through that roof. So that made them a later yet after they decided to break through that roof. So here's Peter, man. He's thinking, I wonder if my insurance company is going to cover this cost, you know. I wonder if my homeowner's policy would take it. And then he realized, oh, hey, Jesus is in here. Perhaps I can get him to agree that this is an act of God. Oh, boy. Yeah, well. So let's go back to that image again where, look at that. Man, I tell you what, it's an it's an incredible image. You know, the four ropes... And these men, once again, working together, lowering their friend down right in front of Jesus. Oh, I love it. I love it. And you can imagine Jesus watching this all happen, you know. The roof is crashing through and stuff's flying everywhere. And, of course, the religious dudes, man, they're freaking out because their robes are getting dirty. Jesus is just thinking. He's amazed at the faith of these four men. He his heart is smiling, man, because he hasn't seen faith like that. But check this out. Number four, Jesus forgives first. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my son, your sins are forgiven. What, seeing their faith, Jesus saw the four men's faith. Do you think they had halos over their head? Do you think they had a large capital F posted on their forehead, you know, for faith? No, no, no. Their faith was very practical. It was very real. And all they knew, they needed to get their friend to where Jesus was, and Jesus recognized that. And in James 2.20, it says, Faith without good deeds or action is useless. And these men put their faith to action, and they brought their friend to where Jesus was. Notice, notice, I'm sure these four guys are thinking, man, we want Jesus to heal our friend. We'd like to see him walk again. But Jesus, he can see that this man is crippled. Nobody else can see his heart, but Jesus can. And Jesus recognizes what? This man needs forgiveness. 
This man needs to be reconciled to God. And so he sees that heart of this man, realizing that sin has separated him from a holy God. Jesus sees his heart. The cry of his heart is to be reconciled. And Jesus forgives first. Why? Because that's what's most important. He could be healed, but you know what? Ultimately, he's going to die one day. And he's going to die. It's over. But by being forgiven first, guess what? He will live forever in the presence of God. Think about that. Jesus recognized that's most important. And that's why he forgave first. So, I got to tell you, he says, my child, your sins are forgiven. I know that might freak you out because this is a full-grown man, but that word child in the Greek, it's just a term of affection even used for adults. Jesus recognized this man had been living a painful life, an isolated life. And so he used that endearing name called child. And that man responded to it. So about 10 days ago, I woke up in the morning. And this song was on my mind. Shall we gather at the river? So... So what I did is, um, at night when our family was together uh, eating birthday cake, before we did that, we went into the uh, family room, and I played that song, Shall We Gather at the River by Buddy Green. Listen to the lyrics. Shall we gather at the river where bright angel feet have trod with its crystal tight forever flowing by the throne of God? Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. Isn't that cool? And the point is that as a a parent and a grandparent, my dream and my goal is for our family to gather at the river one day. Our sins have been forgiven. Notice Jesus forgave first. That our children and grandchildren have put their faith in Christ. And when that time comes, we will gather together at the river. Why? Because we'll spend eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. That should be the goal, man. Are you praying for your kids? Are you praying for your grandkids, man? We need to gather at that river. Man, it made me so excited when we sang that together as a family. Man, I was so excited. So, so now you know what went on in my house 10 days ago. Number five, Jesus and the critics, verse six, but some of the teachers of religious law were sitting there. They thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is God, by the way. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, and so he asked them, why do you ask that question in your hearts? Can I just throw this out to you, friend? You may think you can go into a closet and hide from God. You, you can just roll your, the thoughts through your head and think God doesn't know. God knows everything you're thinking. He sure does. He knows everything about you. 
Don't, don't play that game that you can shut God out of your life. He knows exactly what you're thinking. And he shows it to these religious dudes who think they're so spiritual. And Jesus addresses them. He, he, he reads their mail. He tells them exactly what they're thinking, their critical thinking. And he talks to them about it. Why? Because he's hoping that these men will ultimately put their faith in Christ. And then, number six, shut down no more. Look at, look at verse 10b. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Notice he forgave him first. And now he's turned to the paralyzed man. Stand up, pick up your mat. Now he's going to heal him physically. He healed him spiritually first. Now secondary physical healing. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, explaining, we have never seen anything like this before. Isn't that cool? Notice that man didn't debate, you know. He felt that healing power go through his body, and and he jumped up immediately and, and went home to tell his family what was going on. So which is easier, to forgive a soul or heal a body? Which caused Jesus less pain, providing this man with health or providing this man with heaven? Well, we know it was a simple command to heal him, but to forgive this man's sins, Jesus ultimately had to go to the cross, be nailed to the cross and shed his blood for for the forgiveness of this man. It cost Jesus everything. But on that third day, he came out of the grave. And so this morning, John 1.12 says, But to all who believed him, that's Jesus, and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right. When you put your faith in Christ, you become part of God's family. That's the only way you can get into heaven is being part of God's family. And how do you do that? You can say right now, if you've never done this before, you can say, Jesus, I was created by you and for you but I've lived for me. I've run the life that you were supposed to run, and I know there's a spiritual death penalty for that. But I believe you absorbed that death penalty of mine on the cross when you died for me, and that you are alive today because you walked out of that grave. Today, I'm willing to stop running my own life and my own sinful choices and hold on to you like you are my only hope. Jesus, I believe right now that you have become my personal Savior and all of my sins are forgiven because you shed your blood on the cross for me. And Jesus, help me live for you every day of my life by your Spirit's power. And I thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that's you today, If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? I want to celebrate with you. And I want to encourage you to go to lifechurchmh.com, our website, and fill out that information. And we would love to get information back to you on how you can grow in your relationship with Jesus. Man, that is most exciting. And we want to encourage you in that growth factor. You'll never regret it. So thanks for watching this morning. God bless you. Amen.